Donna said, I'm going to talk today about trying to apply antigen-specific therapy to autoimmune disease, which is really not an easy thing to do, but think about it. We'll, we'll go into the nuances. I guess I'll start out by saying I don't have any conflicts. I wish I did, but right at the moment, I don't. Uh, so, uh, as you guys all know, immunologic tolerance, which is the antigen-specific inhibition of selective immune responses, is really the, the holy grail or gold standard treatment of autoimmune diseases, allergy, and transplantation. And this is what we all aspire to use to get away from the use of immunosuppressive drugs. So the question we've been really approaching in the lab over many, many years, too many to count, is can induced peripheral immune tolerance be used to prevent, but more importantly, to treat autoimmune diseases mediated by TH117, TH2-mediated allergic responses, or to prevent graft rejection in the absence of the needed use of application of immune subset depleting antibodies or prolonged use of immunosuppressive drugs. And as my colleague Larry Steinman likes to characterize this, it's like doing an operation with a scalpel versus a sledgehammer. At least that's how we think about it. And I want to acknowledge the students and postdocs in my lab, former and current and collaborators that contribute to what I'm going to tell you today. And in particular, what I'm going to tell you about today, Daniel Getz, uh, Charles Smarr, Derek McCarthy, Chris, and Zoe were highly involved in this. And I'll also talk about a collaboration with Srinong Luo at Northwestern in the Isle of Transplantation Tolerance data I'll tell you about, and Lonnie Shea at the very end, and our more recent studies that were just, just came out in Nature Biotechnology in December describing antigen coupled uh, PLG nanoparticles as a way to induce tolerance. So I'm going to take you back to my early days. This is over 30 years ago when I was a postdoc at University of Colorado with Henry Clayman. We made the observation that if we took single cell suspensions of splenic leukocytes, no purification, this is just rote splenic leukocytes to get rid of the red cells, and we covalently linked onto the surface of those splenocytes either peptide or protein antigens using this cross-linking agent called ethylene carbidiamide or ECDI. So what ECDI does is it catalyzes peptide bond formation between free aminos and free carboxyls. So after an hour at four degrees centigrade, and note this, there's no processing involved here, uh, you wash these cells, and we call the, these cells now antigen-coupled splenocytes. And if you injected these splenocytes intravenously into a mouse and then came back at some point later with the same protein or peptide and adjuvant to induce an immune response, these guys are specifically and profoundly long-term tolerant to that whatever antigen we had linked onto the cell surface. This was tolerance because they could respond very nicely to even different epitopes within the same protein antigen. So it's highly antigen-specific. So ECDI really does two important things in this, and I'll come back to this. It, number one, it decorates the cells with the antigen you want to induce regulation to. And secondly, and just as important for tolerance, the cross-linking of these cells leads to rapid apoptotic cell death disease, such that when you inject these cells within three hours after intravenous infusion, these cells are all apoptotic and subcellular in size. And the induction of tolerance via this IV route critically depends on recognition of antigen on apoptotic debris. And I'm going to tell you what cells pick it up and how they induce tolerance. Now, the other important thing from this uh, for the students is route of antigen presentation is critical. If you inject these antigen coupled cells sub Q, come back later and prime this animal with the same antigen. Not only are these guys not tolerant, in a lot of cases, these guys make a secondary immune response. And the difference between sub-Q and IV is the antigen-presenting cell population that's engaged in the uptake of these antigen-coupled cells. So I'm going to tell you years worth of work with this one cartoon in the EAE. So this is a model relaxing EAE and SJL mice. You can induce EAE and SJL mice by injecting myelin proteins, or I think the latest count is nine different peptides derived from four different myelin antigens. In this genetic background, if you, in this example, here's this immunodominant peptide on proteolytic protein. If you, if you uh, prime an animal with this peptide sub-Q, these guys develop a paralytic disease that undertakes this relapsing remitting clinical course. 
And we like this model because it enables us to intervene at the disease either at this point or at this point, which are the clinically relevant points that you would want to examine if you're trying to translate some kind of a antigen-specific therapy into humans. This is a TH117 mediated autoimmune disease. I'm not going to go into any of this. This spontaneous remission or recovery is mediated predominantly by the activation of T regulatory cells, but this model is characterized, as Donna said, by this phenomenon called epitope spreading. So that, what that means is in the acute phase, the T, TH1 and 17 cells are specific for the priming epitope. You and they infiltrate the CNS, they make chemokines and cytokines, they activate microglia in the CNS and they cause inflammatory monocytes and macrophages to come in from the, from the periphery and they damage myelin and the end damage result is nonspecific, activated mononuclear cells. And as a consequence of that, they release endogenous myelin antigens such that the primary relapse <coughs> in this particular model is mediated by uh, responses to an epitope, in this case intramolecular, it's on the same PLP protein, but T cells that see this epitope are non-cross-reactive with the initiated ones. So for tolerance, this has very important implications. So number one, if we induce tolerance with PLP coupled to those splenocytes, like I just described to you, anywhere from like eight weeks before this initiation up until the onset, Tolerance to the priming epitope will totally protect you from this whole cascade of damage. Interesting, you can study mechanisms, but not clinically relevant. So the real question we asked starting a number of years ago also, is what could we do at this point in the disease which would be clinically relevant, and this would be, uh, let's say, an MS patient that had an attack, comes to the neurologist, and this is when you're first gonna see him because you can't predict who's gonna get MS. So the question is, what happens if we induce tolerance to this same initiating epitope at this point in time? Well, it does absolutely nothing. You have to induce tolerance to, in this case, to the PLP-178 epitope. And if you do that, you can ameliorate disease progression. But note, you always have this degree of myelin damage that can't be repaired. So these people, these people, these mice, keep a, uh, a deficit that they can't recover from. We have other stuff going on in the lab that we're using immunoregulation along with myelin restorative therapies. And we actually have a pretty nice paper on the way in which we're able to actually make this come back down. We can actually repair myelin if you use the right drug to stimulate oligodendrocyte progenitors, but only if you deal with the underlying immune response first. If you try to repair myelin without dealing with the immune response, it doesn't do anything. <coughs> so this tells us three very important things about it autoimmune disease. They are moving targets due to epitope spreading. Tolerance-based immunotherapy can be used to treat autoimmune disease, but the big caveat is you have to have a priori knowledge of what epitopes you have to target. So that's rather easy to do in an inbred strain of mouse like SJL where you know all the encephalogenic myelin epitopes at least that are involved in this disease process. But how would you translate this to humans? And I'll, I'll try to tell you that in a moment. That's the way the sequence of epitope spreading, it, it's a hierarchical sequence. And we've described in other papers, this, this sort of goes from the most immunodominant epitope down the scale to the least immunodominant epitopes. So in this case, in, this, in these instances, this really is the predominant epitope that's going to be coming next at this time. And simply inducing tolerance of this epitope to make the immune response quiesce can lead to long-term protection. It doesn't move on to any of these other epitopes at later times. Right, but what's happened to the one to which... Uh, these guys are under regulation from regulatory T cells at that time. So the, immune, the, the animal tries to regulate this response. It's just not successful. So we, we, we then moved, uh, you know, more recently, and this is a paper that was published early in 2012, to see whether we could actually use this tolerance therapy in the NOD model of type 1 diabetes. And this is done by predominantly a, post, uh, a student who's finishing up in the lab, Suchita Fasad, and a former postdoc, Adam Cohn. 
So what we did is we took NOD mice, young NOD mice, at four to five weeks of age, and we coupled splenocytes with what at the time we figured were, what was in the literature were the epitopes that <coughs> people had said are involved with the initiation or progression of type 1 diabetes. And those incur these include these GAT65 epitopes, IGRP, the insulin B9 through 23, which George Eisenbart had shown using a genetic thing, a genetic approach was probably the initiating epitope. This contains both a, a CD4 and CD8 epitope. The CD8 epitope is actually the B15 to 23, which is in the uh, 9 through 23. Or sham coupled splenocytes, and I believe these were myelin-basic protein. The bottom line of this whole study was that if you intervene with one shot, five times 10 to the seventh of splenocytes coupled with these varying antigens, uh, the insulin B9 through 23 and 15 to 23 epitopes were really potent in young NOD mice and preventing them from ever developing type 1 diabetes. So this is consistent with, with what George Eisenbart had published, that B9 through 23 is the initiating or at least a very early diabetogenic epitope in the, in the NOD model. Uh, uh, we also showed the tolerance of the cocktail of peptides, all of these together, uh, if, as long as it contained the B923 epitope, was effective and uh, fairly uh, well ameliorating the onset of disease. Now, another point I want to bring out, and the, one of the other powers of powerful things about this model of tolerance is uh, you can also induce tolerance to intact insulin. Uh, so you don't need, really even need to know the epitope that's dominant within the protein. You can actually couple the whole protein itself to, to these uh, apoptotic splenocytes and induce tolerance. And as a matter of fact, in this particular experiment, uh, the uh, insulin, the intact insulin, totally protected the animals from disease. So this tells you one thing right away, that tolerance induced by antigen-decorated apoptotic cells is not a direct interaction of, uh, of autoreactive T cells with the input tolerogen. This is a response that is mediated by representation of antigen by host antigen-presenting cells. Okay, I'll get to that in a moment and tell you what they are. And this is just showing that if you tolerize with either insulin coupled spleen or the insulin B923, you can really protect these animals uh, at, at times post-treatment uh, from destructive insulitis or even uh, infiltration of the pancreas with the activated T cells. And that's quantitated here. And this was in a paper journal of autoimmunity early last year. Now the other interesting thing is that if you did, instead of using young mice, again, interesting but not so clinically relevant, if you wait to animals that are about 19 weeks of age in our colony, just before they start to become overtly diabetic, we found the interesting thing is consistent, again, with the phenomenon of epitope spreading, that at this point in time, whole insulin could totally protect the animals from the transition into to fulminant type 1 diabetes. But unlike the uh, mice at four or five or six weeks of age, insulin B9 through 23 in red didn't protect at this time. And this implies that an insulin epitope distinct from B9 through 23 is induced at NOD mice at about the time of disease onset, again, potentially via epitope spreading. And that if we use the whole protein containing uh, the uh, initiating epitope plus other epitopes with insulin, we could afford protection. But that what worked early now doesn't work late. So this, uh, we came to the following conclusion about a model similar to what we had done in EAE, and that is that development of type 1 diabetes, which occurs when you lose about 75 or 80 percent of your islet cell mass, is due to epitope spreading. One of the first epitopes is B9 through 23, it then spreads to other epitopes, and at this critical transition period before animals are fully diabetic, uh, it, there's, there's a, a dominant response, we think, and we're trying to elucidate this now, either on the insulin A chain or on the insulin B chain in an area outside the B9 through 23 that's primarily driving disease at this point. And the fact that this is an early epitope affords the fact 
that spinocyte tolerance to either the initiating epitope or to the dominant epitope or to the whole protein can prevent these animals from progressing. But when you get down to this point, only whole insulin works because the epitopes have switched. But V9 through 23 no longer provides protection. What we're really interesting in, uh, interested, in, uh, interested in doing uh, in collaboration with Shrinrung Luo at Northwestern is actually taking animals at this point, this would be like a long-standing diabetic, and asking, can we induce tolerance to autoantigens plus donor uh, islet alloantigens and actually reverse disease and cure disease in, in, in a person that, that has lost all or or a great proportion of their islands without having to use, uh, you know, this cocktail, the Edmonton protocol of uh, lots of uh, immunosuppressive drugs. So, Shrin Rung, when she came to Northwestern about five or six years ago, uh, she came uh, from Alapia uh, in New York. She's a nephrologist, interested in islet transplant, had worked in Ralph Steinman's lab became interested in using T-regs for islet transplant, and she asked me to be her uh, KO8 mentor, her physician scientist award. And I was sort of hesitant at first, but I thought, you know, why, you know, so we, I eventually agreed, I'm really glad I did, because we've had a great collaboration ever since. And these are people in my lab and her lab that worked on islet transplant. But anyway, Shodong <coughs> and I talked about the fact, could we ECDI fix Donor, donor leukocytes to make them apoptotic and induce tolerance that, that could afford long-term protection of transplant of islets across allogeneic barriers. So uh, the model is very similar to what I showed you before, except there's no antigen in this in vitro mixture. We're simply taking donor islets, let's say, or donor leukocytes from BALD-C, who's eventually going to serve as islet donor to a diabetic B6, we're going to fix them with ECDI so that they become apoptotic. And we're going to tolerize the recipients. And we found out we had to do this seven days before the transplant and again one day after. And we make black 6 mice diabetic by streptozotism treatment. This is a non-autoimmune induction of disease. And normally, Bouncy Isles, as you'll see in a moment, are rejected very quickly we found that we could get indefinite protection of these islets without having to use any immunosuppressive drugs simply by doing this, this uh, double uh, tolerization. If we do tolerization two, uh, at two times before the transplant, it doesn't work. If we do it at two times after the transplant, it doesn't work. It only works if you use blank. I don't know why. What's the dose of cells? Uh, here, this is... Uh, we normally use five times 10 to seven to 10 to the eighth, but we found we could go down to as, as few as 10 to the seventh cells of each uh, injection. So here's the experiment. You make black six mice diabetic by streptozotocin. You tolerize those with biopsy donor leukos uh, apoptotic leukocytes seven days before and one day after transplant of 500 islets from that guy under the kidney capsule. <laughs> If you don't induce tolerance in blue, the islets are uh, uh, rejected within 15 to 20 days. If you inject at minus 7 and plus 1 with the apoptotic donor leukocytes, and this, we can get indefinite protection, and we're actually even better at doing this now. Uh, uh, for greater than 100 days, we carried some of these out for a year. They never reject. This is tolerance, because if we tolerize with ECDI-treated SJL leukocytes and then do a BALC islet transplant in purple, they're rejected normally. And the cells have to be apoptotic, because if you inject with uh, the same number of live leukocytes at day minus 7 and plus 1, not only uh, of BALC, not only are the recipients not tolerant, they actually are primed by seeing viable cells rather than apoptotic cells. So you get an hyperacute rejection. So this tolerance, I'm not going to go through this data because it was actually published back in 2008 in subsequent papers, is donor-specific. As I said, it requires ECDI fixation. It requires the cells to be apoptotic. It's dependent on both pdl one mediated antigen and the induction of FOXP3T regs. 
And uh, tolerance we also found protects islets that are transplanted IP uh, on PLG scaffolds. Uh, if you look at the immune response to the, to the alloantigens, you get a, a fair diminution of the MLR response in both the spleen and the, uh, and the peripheral lymph nodes draining the kidney where the, where the transplant is put. But if you look at interferon gamma production in the tolerized animals, we almost totally wiped that out. So this is very potent tolerance uh, measured by interferon gamma production in, a, in an MLR culture. Or if you look by uh, challenging the donor animals in an ear swelling PTH assay with the, uh, with the donor leukocytes. The other interesting thing we found about this, and this will become relevant in a moment for xenogenetic transplants, is that this allogeneic islet transplantation leads to allo-specific antibody induction in, the, uh, in animals, in control animals that just get the islet transplants. So not, no, not only do we get these T cell responses, these guys, these guys also make uh, antibody to the donor of all these different isotypes you can see in this flow assay. In the tolerized animals, we not only knocked out the T cell response, we also knocked out the allo-specific antibody response in, in, in the recipients. And if you look at these guys, uh, here's looking at guys 14 days after tolerance. This would be just about the peak of the control animals rejecting their islets. And if we look at tolerance animals out at day 70, you can see you get nice insulin production that, that's sustained. And again, I just want to point out there's no immunosuppressive drugs. This, these guys got treated at minus seven and plus one, and we let them go. Uh, you can see you get a lot of infiltration early on in these uh, islets under the kidney capsule of CD4 T cells, and that's blown up here. But you also see in red is Fox D3. These guys are filled with T regulatory cells. So even though you have these potentially uh, auto or alloreactive cells, they are apparently held in check by the T regulatory cells. And here you see the islets where I have the, uh, the asterisk. When you get out to 70 days post-tolerization, then you see that you have very few uh, uh, CD4 T cells. Here are the, the nice islets. And you see the regulatory T cells are gone from the islets at that time. So this seems to be a response that requires T regs early, but T regs are not really required for the long-term maintenance. Uh, it seems to be more on the energy side. So let me just transition really quickly into telling you uh, about Zeno. <coughs> yeah. We have not. We have tried directly doing tolerance to allogeneic skin grafts using this model, and, and across a full MHC barrier like Valve CDB6, it doesn't work. That's the one thing, and I'll, I'll have a list coming up. That's the one thing that doesn't work. Uh, but if you do skin grafts across an HY barrier, this works beautifully. You know. If you thought you were putting some donor skin grafts on animals that are accepting the islands to see what happens to the islands. Now that's a good point. We've never done that. Yeah, and we've never done that. The question would be what happens if you put the islands into portable? Is the is the kidney capsule site important? Yeah, I mean important. so I mentioned the scaffolds. We've done it with scaffolds mm -hmm. and it works for that. We've done it with intraportal injection of islets in mice, mm -hmm. and it works. It really belongs to time to rejection, but they eventually reject. So there's something about intraportal injection and the innate immune response induced by, you know, uh, the necrosis that's induced by that, that, uh, you know, we have to deal with with other means. And I'll, I might touch on some of those in a moment. But several years ago, we got contacted by uh, people at JDRF, and they're, the JDRF, the obvious interest is using xenogenetic islets because of the paucity of getting good islets from uh, cadaveric donors for human islet transplantation, and the fact that you usually need two different, two separate donors to get enough islets to go into one recipient, which means you have even more allogeneic responses going on. So we started out by uh, Shudrung uh, and I, and there's a paper that's now submitted uh, early December, we haven't heard about it yet. 
And we actually started off with a model looking at rat to mouse IO transplantation. And along with Bernard Herring, I'm not going to show you the data for that, at uh, Bernard Herring at the University of Minnesota, we've actually done pig to IO transplantation because that's really the desired thing, the desired uh, combination uh, by JDRF because pig islets are, are, are um, very similar to human islets. <coughs> And you can get a bunch of them. You can have transgenic pig colonies that knock out the alpha gal to avoid hyperacute rejection. Uh, but as a proof of principle, we tried rat to mouse islet uh, grass. And you can see, if you don't do anything to control in the black boxes, again, we're making B6 mice diabetic with streptozotocin. We're tolerizing with rat ECDI fixed apoptotic splenocytes at minus seven and plus one. And uh, if you don't do anything, the rat islands are rejected as per normal. If you tolerize them with a third party, Worcester uh, uh, Firth, rat, ECDI fixed splenocytes, they're rejected very quickly. We get nice prolongation and rejection if we pre-tolerize them with the cognate islet, which is from Lewis rats. But unlike the allogeneic situation, they're eventually rejected. So, Aloe works very well, one, two shots, no immunosuppression. One thing we noticed that's different between the Xeno rat islets and the mouse islets is that simply injecting the ECDI-treated rat splenocytes into mice actually induced an anti-Xeno antibody response. We never see that in aloe. And you can see that grass that are being rejected uh, are actually full of B220 cells and C4D region of complement. So we were doing anti-CD, mouse anti-CD20 experiments, our EAE models, and we had the antibody around. So we asked what would happen if we combined the tolerance to hit the T cells with one shot of anti-CD20 to deplete the B cells before we did the transplant. And what you can see is, if you just look at this, if we give anti-CD20 plus the rat ECDI spleen, uh, these animals are totally protected. Uh, rat islets are held on board. And again, we've taken this up in, in, uh, in some cases up to 250 days post-transplant. And what you can see is uh, by depleting the B cells, probably not surprisingly, you, you actually prevent the anti-xeno antibody response because you've depleted the B cells. Yeah. Have you tried also administering apoptotic allogeneic islets because that may also be part of the response? We've thought about that, but we figured uh, we'd have to kill so many mice to get enough islets to do it. Rats, uh, rats. We can't afford that. Or rats, maybe we could do it. But pig? But pig? Yeah, pig, we, we could. So you just give the anti-CD20 once? One time. One shot. And... Uh, and, and it's, I think, two days before we induce the tolerance because the tolerance itself induces the antibody. And then we get this uh, total long-term protection. The anti-CD20 itself provides some protection, but it eventually wanes away just like the tolerance itself. But if you combine them, you get that. And if you look at the immune responses against Zeno, uh, 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 you, you can see that the combination of the rat ECDI spleen plus anti-CD20 knocks down DTH. If you look at either CD8 or CD4's uh, xeno-specific cells, their proliferative ability and, and ability to make interferon gamma are sort of totally wiped out by the combination there. Now, I mentioned that we're doing pig to B6 xenoviolets, and this is a further complication because we found out that tolerance plus anti-CD20 alone, we get significant prolongation, but nothing like that. They eventually reject. And this actually, we found out, requires a triple therapy. And this requires tolerance plus one shot of uh, anti-CD20 plus a short course of rapamycin from day zero to six. And if you do that, they'll hold the pig islets for 250 days. So with Bernard Herring, we're now into non-human primates using this triple therapy to see whether we can actually get pig the non-human primate islets to hold without using long-term immunosuppression. 
What's so, what site are you using for engraftment? Interportal. I mean, it's, I think, an issue is that the site of, of where the graft goes is yeah. very It very well may be. And like I said, in aloe and mouse transplants, we can get a significant <laughs> prolongation of inter violets put interportally, but not the total long-term protection as we do when we put them in under the kidney caps. All right, so what this tolerance, uh, and I'm not going to go through all this data, obviously, because we've tried this in a number of different models. So what the tolerance is effective in is TH117 autoimmune diseases. I've shown you data for EAE or cartoon and data for type 1 diabetes. Other people have published over the years this works in experimental models of autoimmune neuritis, thyroiditis, my, uh, my, myocarditis, and myasthenia gravis. Uh, we published a paper that got quite a bit of press last year, or I guess it's two years ago now, we're in 13, using this in an OVA alum uh, TH2 mediated model of allergic airway disease and in a model of peanut allergy, uh, showing that we can tolerate TH2 responses just as readily as TH1 and 17. Uh, we, we have data in an AAV delivered gene therapy model. Uh, we have data I showed you in the islet transplantation. Uh, I mentioned this works very well across HY barriers, minor histocompatibility barriers. One thing it doesn't work for is fully MHC mismatched allogenic skin grafts. And our suspicion is that the skin is full of activated antigen-presenting cells that are high expressors of co-stimulation. We simply can't overcome that very strong stimulus. So what is the mechanism by which this works to tolerize all these cells? And again, this was published in a paper J.I. last year. I'm just going to show you a cartoon without going through all the data. So here's the model, and, and I'm going to come back to this. Notice I have here, recapitulates how tolerance is normally maintained in the hematopoietic compartment. And I'll tell you why in a moment. So here's the model we're taking. Uh, don't, we're taking an autoimmunity, let's use that as an example. We're taking syngenetic splenic leukocytes, 4 degrees centigrade with ECDI, we're coupling autoantigenic proteins or peptides, our 4 degrees centigrade wash the cells, we inject IV, we get this very profound uh, specific tolerance. If you mark these cells with a membrane dye and ask where they go, this becomes very important to mechanism now. They go, as you might expect, to the lung, liver, and spleen. The spleen is critical because if we splenectomize before we IV inject these antigen coupled apoptotic cells, you don't get tolerance. And if you ask where in the spleen these go, the apoptotic bodies associate predominantly with marginal zone macrophages in a small population of CD8 positive PCs in the splenic marginal zone. This injection also upregulates an interesting cadre of scavenger receptors. And scavenger receptors, as you probably are aware, are used to uptake apoptotic debris. And it's long been known that splenic marginal zone macrophages, and this is long been known by pathologists, but not by me until maybe five years ago, marginal zone macrophages are the cells that uptake and dispose of literally millions of senescent red cells neutrophils and other leukocytes every day and are thought to be an important component to maintain tolerance in the hematopoietic system. If we track where labeled apoptotic cells go, and I told you within three hours after this injection, these guys are now all subcellular in size. The injection causes upregulation of scavenger receptors. So these cells get uptaken predominantly, these apoptotic antigen-decorated cells, by marginal zone macrophages. And three important things happen. Remember before I told you the tolerance wasn't direct, it was indirect. These guys eat the apoptotic antigen-decorated debris. And number one, they present the antigen on their own MHC molecules. So that provides the specificity. And this also uh, illustrates why you can use whole protein rather than peptides, because this guy will decide what epitopes it can actually present. So you don't need to know the epitopes, you just need to know the proteins. And even that's a big problem in a lot of autoimmune diseases. We don't even know what the proteins are. Number two, these guys upregulate PDL1 and 2. They don't upregulate CD80 and 86, the positive co-stems. So you're upregulating regulatory co-stems. 
And as a matter of fact, uptake of the debris actually prevents even LPS-induced upregulation of CDADM86. So some signals coming through these scavenger receptors that's preventing positive co-stimulation. And I think these cells are geared to that because of their normal job in disposing of senescent leukocytes and red cells. So one of the mechanisms of tolerance is mediated by PD-1-mediated energy if you happen to run into an activated T cell. Number three, upon injection, ingestion of these through scavenger receptors, these guys start making boatloads of IL-10. So this is a very potent way to induce antigen-specific induced Tregs, which we think then uh, overlay the cell intrinsic energy and explain why this is such a potent way to induce and maintain tolerance. And you can block the tolerance partially by anti-IL-10 and anti-PD-L1 if you combine them. You can pretty much obviate uh, and get rid of tolerance. So, what are the potential clinical applications of this? Well, obviously, tolerance to allo or xenoantigens for islet transplants and maybe others. For treatment of allergic diseases, uh, for treatment, uh, this is one of the indications we think we might uh, try for both the apoptotic cells and the microparticles I'll tell you about in a moment, is uh, we have some data with David Scott that we can actually induce tolerance and factor eight knockout mice to, fact, to human factor eight. So here's a, here's a great example along with allergy where you actually know the antigen you want to deal with. In autoimmune disease, we're really guessing at, at what antigens. And uh, so the idea here would be to, uh, a person that's enzyme deficient, is to give them the enzyme on their own autologous apoptotic leukocytes, first pass, and then, use the recombinant proteins to try to reverse their disease and prevent the antibody responses that are a big problem in, in this type of treatment. But our heart was in, uh, you know, obviously uh, for many years, this M MS model. So uh, <clears throat> several years ago, I had paired up with Roland Martin, who at that time was at the uh, uh, NIH and the neuroimmunology branch. And uh, we went to a meeting together one time and sat at a banquet. And I was, he had heard me give my talk earlier today at this, at this uh, conference. And I said, we really need to try this in a uh, clinical trial in MS patients. Does it do anything? And of course, the problem with MS patients is we don't know what initiates the disease in the first place. We think that myelin responses are important. <laughs> Depending on the individual, it's going to be different myelin peptides. But anyway, we went through a seven years of work to get to the point, I'm gonna show you two slides. So the idea of the trial was pretty simple. Roland's lab had identified these uh, myelin peptides from three different myelin proteins that were immunodominant, and predominantly in HLA-DR2B, which I think is star 1501. That's the predominant HLA type for MS and, and in University of Hamburg, where we carried out the trial, about 80% of the patients uh, that come in are HLA-DR2B. So the idea was to leukocyte to get patients as early as possible. You want to deal with, you don't want epitope spreading going on, because then you're really out of luck about knowing what the antigens are. We hooked the people up to a leukocytophoresis machine, uh, purified their purple blood bonded leukocytes, and in a closed blood bag system using GMP-grade peptides, you could imagine the regulatory stuff we had to go through to do this. We made ECI-linked cells that now instead of having one peptide on, has seven peptides. And we reinfused these back into the patient intravenously. So the regulators rightly made us do a dose escalation safety trial. So we were shooting, gearing up for mice, we estimated we needed somewhere between one in three billion autologous cells to go back in to meet the criteria that we, uh, the same ratio that we do in mice. Uh, and what we did is uh, we did MRIs at month minus one, collected blood, and then collected blood again at month plus one and month plus three. And so I'm showing you uh, immune responses to the different tolerated myelin peptides 
melanoma tetanus toxoid is controlled. At month minus one before treatment, these people were given MRIs, they were treated on day zero. They got MRIs at month plus one and month plus three because we're, you know, the real concern is we're going to trigger reactivation of disease by this, right? So uh, the bottom line is we did a dose escalation study, and I'm only showing you up to 10 to the ninth. We actually went up one patient, an add-on patient, actually got five billion cells. No serious adverse events. But the cool thing, the, the, the patients that got five times 10 to the eighth and above, uh, their, in general, their responses to almost all the myelin epitopes, and this is a precursor frequency assay. We were talking about this at dinner last night. The hardest thing in human autoimmune disease is measuring autoimmune responses from purple blood T cells. So Rollins lab uses a, uh, an assay where they, they plate 48 wells uh, at each concentration of the seven peptides or tetanus toxoid. And uh, then you express the data as the percent of those 48 wells that have a stimulation index greater than two. A mouse immunologist would kill themselves if they had to use this assay, but this is what is done. So I'm just reporting when we found that. And you can see, for the most part, these patients, these go down. And if you put all the, if you group all the patients that had five times 10 to the eighth autologous leukocytes or above versus those that had less than five times 10 to the eighth, what you can see is the response to even grouping, you know, these heterogeneous population of, of humans, the response to four of these peptides was significantly lower than it was at month minus one at month plus three. And the really critical thing too, uh, whoops, no effect on the tetanus toxoid response. Now we only have four patients in this category. It has to go into a phase two. We can't get anybody the money to, get to, to do the phase two. The problem is Roland was in Germany. He recently moved to Switzerland. The German government was going to fund the phase two. Roland moved to Switzerland. They withdrew. And we obviously can't get any biotechs to be interested in a cellular therapy such as this. So we need like $1.5 billion to do the phase two, and that's where we are. Okay, but let me, t let me tell you where, where, where we're going in the future, which I think is really important. Yeah, I mean, these were, nobody had a relapse up until, uh, I think they, I think we only did the MRIs at month plus three, because that's all we had the money for. But the patients are continuing to be followed, and my understanding is, uh, you know, it looks like the ones that got the high doses are not progressing, but there's really not enough patients to really make a, any conclusion. I mean, we're going to have to do a phase two. So where are we going from now? So we have a therapy that might work, that even if it does work, we decided several, several years ago that this therapy is so complex and costly, you know, requires a, a blood transfusion center. It can only be done at large medical centers. It's not that you're not going to be able to do this in Bismarck, South Dakota, or whatever, uh, to an MS patient. And so we got the idea through serendipitous ways, I can tell you later, that maybe we could find a nanoparticle that would serve as a surrogate for an apoptotic uh, cell blood. And uh, I, I don't have time, but I'm going to show you the data to tell you why we thought this. Anyway, we, uh, with these guys in my lab and in collaboration with Lonnie Shea, who's a material scientist, a nano sub, uh, uh, person at Northwestern University Institute of Nanoscience and a couple students in his lab, and collaboration with Nick King at University of Sydney, we asked whether antigen-coupled nanoparticles of varying formulations, injected IV, could induce tolerance. And uh, how, how this is it the nanoparticles? I'll, I'll tell you. Okay. Uh, the, the, the bottom line is 500 nanometers is ideal for this, so half a micron. So we had this paper, it just came out in December in Nature Biotechnology, if you're interested in. And as you notice, the title says microparticles. So we got the paper accepted, you know, the usual nature crap, you know, it was three revisions, more data, more data, more data. And they go to set the type, and I get a call from the editor, and he says, 
you know, the, the National Institute of Nanotechnology defines nanoparticles as between one and a hundred nanometers. And he said, we're gonna have to call these microparticles. And I said, well, that's not descriptive. They're less, they're sub-micron in size. To me, they're nanoparticles. So I, we reached a compromise, and you'll notice it says microparticles, and then I insisted that it had 500 nanometers in diameter behind them. But anyway, so this paper contains a ton of data, as, you, as all nature papers end, end, end up doing. And what it shows is, is the following real quick. So we originally started out using polystyrene 500 nanometer diameter uh, particles. To, these you can buy carboxylated, you can buy them that they're fluorescinated so you can track where they go. They're carboxylated, so you can use ECBI to couple antigens onto their surface to form that peptide bond. So long story short, you inject them at day minus seven, they prevent EAE, you inject them at onset or a peak, they knock down EAE, use them in a therapy, they prevent the, the uh, uh, relapses. Uh, we've shown these particles are also effective in a sort of humanized mouse model, a double transgenic HLA-DR2 and a TCR transgenic for an MVP epitope. Uh, you can read in the paper how they work. The bottom line is, they work very similar to the apoptotic cells. You get a cell intrinsic energy and you activate two legs. Now the other thing we found out, of course, like always, you go back to the literature after you find out something works. And we went back to the literature and we were wondering, if you think back, I told you about the scavenger receptors of the apoptotic cells. So you go back in the literature and you find out polystyrene particles are engulfed by acidic cells through a scavenger receptor called Marco pretty much exclusively. So we got a hold of Marco knockout mice, mice from a guy at Harvard, Lester Kopchik. Unfortunately, these are in the bowel seat background, they can't do EAE, so we're doing our favorite response of everybody to OVA 323. And what I, this is what I want to point out to you here. We're comparing OVA coupled polystyrene beads, which I have as microparticles here, and OVA coupled spleen cells, peptide. If you use wild type mice, both uh, the microparticles and the uh, uh, couple of splenocytes induce tolerance, especially by DTH, near swelling assay. In the Marco knockout mice, the ovacoupled splenocytes are too, still fully tolerogenic, but the ovacoupled polystyrene beads can't induce tolerance. So it appears that Marco is the critical scavenger receptor that's involved in the uptake of these particles. Uh, the way it works, this is, again, we think it has an energy component, and I'll show you here. You tolerate the OVA beads and then prime with 139 and then elicit 139, PLP-139 responses. You get a, you know 100,000 counts per minute and compared over here to, uh, to where you tolerate the PLP beads and then immunize with uh, 139 and recall with that. You get a very significant diminution of the antigen-specific response to PLP-139. Interestingly, that can partially be overcome by adding IL-2 into the media, which is the definition of energy. Also, uh, depleting T regulatory cells causes a partial relief of this tolerance. So again, we think both of these mechanisms are important in maintaining tolerance. And here's an experiment where we're actually tracking PLP-specific transgenic T cells. They're labeled with CFSE, stuck in a normal SJL mouse, who's tolerized seven days later is prime, and seven days after that, we're looking in the spleen for uh, interfere gamma and IL-17 responses. And what you can see here, if you tolerize with the nonspecific uh, OVA-323 uh, peptide on the polystyrene beads, and then immunize, you get a nice PLP-specific TH1 and 17 response. Uh, in the animals that received the PLP beads and were later primed with PLP and there was a response recall, you totally prevent the induction or the differentiation of the TH1 and 17 cells. So, last bit of data uh, is that's all well and good. The polystyrene beads are not biodegradable. They're never going to be able to use by FDA. So, this is where I got in, in contact with Lonnie Shea, our nanotech guy. And Lonnie was a guy that was 
that's been working with this nanosubstance called polylactyl-coglycolate. This is an FDA-approved substance. Some of you may know it as they make resorbable sutures out of this stuff. So, and you can make it, Lonnie has made it into scaffolds. I, I remarked about you can load tiles into scaffolds and put them on IP. So I, I went to Lonnie one day and I said, what are the characteristics of this stuff and can we make nanoparticles out of it or you know particles out of it? And he could. Uh, and what this is showing in two separate experiments is that if you tolerize animals with PLP on these PLG nanoparticles, these are 500 nanometers. Smaller particles don't work for some reason. It's very interesting. Larger particles work, but not as well. And we think this is the optimal size. These things sort of get trapped in the splenic marginal zone when you shoot them IV. Uh, but we don't have great data on that. That's our feeling. So here's, uh, this is showing you compared in this case to uh, polystyrene beads, which are in open squares, we get nice tolerance. With these PLG particles, we just totally bottom out the disease. You just don't see anything. Two different examples. These are what the beads look like. Their average size, as I said, is about 500 nanometers. Okay. If you look histologically into these prophylactically tolerized mice at day minus seven, you totally negate the infiltration of CD4 and CD8 T cells in the CNS and you prevent demyelination. Now the other cool thing we found recently, this is using, this was all using PLG particles carboxylated. They have, the other thing, the other thing, they have to, 500 nanometers, but they have to be carboxylated. If they're not carboxylated, they're amino decorated, they don't work. And they don't engage Marco if they're amino decorated rather than carboxylated. So this is all done with surface coupled PLP peptide. So we were thinking of instances, if you want to use this in autoimmune disease or whatever, uh, it might be easier to encapsulate the antigen rather than sticking on the surface. Because if you're trying to tolerate a complex autoimmune disease and have to use multiple epitopes, trying to couple, cell, couple cells or particles with multiple epitopes might be a detriment. They might interfere with each other. So, Olani, uh, we, we recently did this experiment uh, in EAE in which we did what they call a double, uh, double emulsion preparation of the beads. So that you make a bead, you, make, you encapsulate an antigen inside the beads and then you form the shell and have that carboxylated. And as you can see here, the, the encapsulated car, uh, carboxylated uh, beads that have the PLP-139 peptide inside provide total long-term protection. So what about therapy? So uh, it, here's three examples. In acute EAE, we induce it here at zero. Disease onset at 10. We tolerate the disease onset with a, with a specific PLG beads. Totally protect them from uh, expression of disease. And I'm comparing them here to the PLP coupled splenocytes in this assay. They work better. Uh, Adoptive EAE, where you transfer activated myelin-specific T cells to a normal recipient. Disease onset much quicker here, uh, you know, about uh, day five rather than day ten, because you're transferring previously activated T cells. You tolerate a day plus two total protection. Active EAE remission. In this case, we're inducing disease with PLP 178. They go through acute into remission. <coughs> Spread goes to 139. We tolerate with 139 in remission prevent the relapse. So these are capable of being used in a therapeutic sense. And we'll just end up with telling you one thing about type 1 diabetes. Uh, then the question came up, will these work in either an adoptive or the active NOD type 1 diabetes, or the uh, spontaneous NOD. <coughs> so here's an example where you take the BDC 2.5 TCR transgenic cells, activated with their cognate peptide, which is a peptide on chromogram A. You transfer five million cells to a nod skid. These guys are diabetic very quickly. And if you tolerize them at one day after the transfer of those cells with uh, uh, chromogram peptide coupled to the PLG particles, you could totally protect these guys and we carried this out to 100 days. And you could actually show that in these animals, uh, that have received these highly activated diabetogenic cells, 
uh, if they're if they're tolerated with a controlled MOG uh, 35 peptide, you can see a lot of these transgenic cells in the pancreas, uh, not too many in the pancreatic lymph node. But interestingly, if the guys are tolerized one day later, you're totally preventing the infiltration of these uh, cells into the pancreas. And they seem to be somewhat building up in the pancreatic lymph node. But uh, this is really uh, recent data, and uh, uh, we need to do more of this. And we have an initial hint of using PLG coupled with insulin, again, on the surface. Lots of animals that we can get it. And these are administered at 6, 8, 10 weeks of age that we can get a pretty good protection from the development of uh, type 1 diabetes spontaneous. So this is the last slide. I'm going to skip that one. So how does all this work? Uh, again, we're injecting antigen and apoptotic debris or in these <coughs> nanoparticles. We have scavenger receptors in the terms of nanoparticles. Marco seems to be important. So the recipient APCs in the splenic marginal zone are taking up either the antigen-decorated apoptotic blebs uh, membrane blebs or the particles. Uh, three things are happening. Number one, the peptide that's on these is now being represented on the host APC, providing the antigen specificity. PDL1 is coming up. So, uh, so tolerance, if you happen to run into an effector T cell autoreactive that is expressing PD1, you can get energy and activated PD uh, active, energy and activated T cells. Number two, I told you that these guys don't express much CD80 and uptake of the particles actually blocks even uh, LPS-induced upregulation of CD80. So if you happen to run into a naive T cell, a classic Jenkins-Schwartz, we don't have co-stimulation, but we have the antigen-specific signal. So we have signal one without signal two. You can get energy in a naive T cell. And number three, I told you that these guys make tons of IL-10 after engulfing these particles or the uh, apoptotic debris. So again, uh, recognition of antigen by a naive T cell in this IL-10 environment will cause the activation of induced T breaks. And so what we're, uh, what we're dealing with right now is how to best take this forward. And I've had all these uh, visits lately, and especially since this paper came out, I, been called by multiple biotech companies that want, are interested in this. And I'm distrustful of most of them, uh, but we're trying to carry this forward. And the, you know, the possible autoimmune diseases that we've shown that, that nanoparticles could be useful in, at least by animal models, are EAE type 1 diabetes. We've shown in the allergic airway disease using OVA-coupled or OVA-encapsulated PLG particles knocks down the uh, IgE and the TH2 cytokine response uh, in gene therapy. And we have some recent data in a uh, uh, HY-specific bone marrow transplant model. This works very nicely, too, by using uh, nanoparticles coupled with the immunodominant, uh, I think it's called, I think it's DBY epitope on, on the HLA. So uh, there's another use of nanoparticles that I'm not going to go into. I can come back sometime in a couple of years to tell you about that. It turns out these carboxylated nanoparticles by themselves are highly anti-inflammatory. This requires multiple daily infusions. And we have some really beautiful data in a number of different inflammatory models in which inflammatory monocytes and macrophages are used. Uh, and in particular, to maybe Iris' interest with uh, Ed Thorpe, who's one of Meyer's uh, former postdocs, we've shown in a myocardial infarction model that we can reduce the size of a lesion in the heart by about 70%. Uh, and Ed ties off the left descending coronary artery, and we inject particles 24, 48, and 72 hours after. And then we look at varying times after. The size of the lesion in the heart in the particle injected device is about 30, only 30% the size it is in the non-particle treated. So these guys can prevent the infiltration of inflammatory monocytes and macrophages into inflammatory sites. And uh, I'm not showing you the data, but they actually cause the sequestration of those inflammatory monocytes and macrophages in the spleens of those treated animals. And that's all Marco-dependent, just like the tolerances. So thank you very much for your attention. I'll turn yeah. 
Steve, that, that was very, very exciting work. Um, and uh, so it seems like the, the key event, uh, or one of the key signaling events in the antigen presenting cells is some pathway communicating, let's say, a scavenger receptor like Marco, and the upregulation of PDL1 as opposed to the upregulation of co-stimulatory. Right. Because you're getting this immune, uh, this uh, tolerant effect rather than cross-presentation. That's As correct. As you well know, there's a ton of literature about antigen-presenting cells taking up dead cells and cross-presenting. Right. So the question I have for you is, do you know what the signal transduction pathway <laughs> is? That's a great question. That's exactly what we're working on now. Is trying to, we're trying to, uh, you know, we're using lots of, you know, proteomic and microarray stuff to try to get a broader picture of what, in quote, the tolerogenic signature is after uptake of apoptotic debris or particles and exactly what's going on. I can't really tell you much right at the moment, but uh, that's exactly the path we're going right now to try to figure that out. Yeah? What would you envision as the next steps to standing in the way of launching a Well, I was telling people at dinner last night that we're, we're, I actually paired up with JDRF and we're going, we've gone to talk to three different biotechs now. We're in discussions about getting them to partner with us for simply that purpose. And, you know, I mean, obviously the first thing that's going to have to be done is, even though this is PLG's FDA approved, we have to repeat everything you know, with intravenous injection of these nanoparticles made out of the same substance. So that's not, as you know, that's not a cheap thing to do, and we need funding to do that. Uh, we think we have a very good IP stance in both of these areas, the, you know, the one-shot antigen-coupled particles for tolerance versus the multi-infusion naked, I call them naked particles, for anti-inflammatory uses. On the second instance, we've actually just incorporated our own company with a couple of people to carry this through. With the antigen-specific therapy, we're, we're thinking about, instead of going on our own, partnering with larger biotech. So that's sort of where it sits right now, you know. And it's like most of the people that have marched out and talked to biotechs, they always tell you, oh, this is really interesting. And they try to get everything out of your brain and you always wonder whether they're actually going to follow through. <laughs> but what antigens are you thinking of using? Well, you know, that's, that's the other question. The question was, what antigens for type 1 diabetes? And, I, you know, I don't really know the answer. I think we would think of insulin first or pro-insulin. Uh, we might use a, a cocktail of antigens just like, you know, we're the approach that we tried with the coupled cells and MS. So it might be insulin, pro-insulin, and... I don't know, IGRP or, you know, GAD65, if you believe GAD65 is a... We believe joint <laughs> I don't. So, yeah, I mean, that's the, pro that's the whole problem with autoimmune disease is what do you target? Whereas in, you know, allergic disease or these protein replacement therapy, because the last thing I want to happen is we try this in type 1 diabetes and it doesn't work, and then, you know, 10 years down we find that insulin is not what we should have been going after. I want to go after a, an indication where we actually know what the antigen that's driving some responses. The other thing I'd like to do, and this is why I want to talk to people here later on, Megan and, and others, is uh, I would like to put this in, in, you know, at least interimly in a humanized mouse model of type 1 diabetes to see whether we can actually show that the particles can tolerate human T cells. You know, I think that's going to be important too to, to carry forward. Yeah. yeah, and you had said that, um, I guess, in one of the models, that the spleen was required for the tolerance induction. Is that where you think the tolerance induction is going on? And do the Tregs need to migrate, like in the MS model or diabetes, do they yeah. need to migrate to the site that you're... Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And we have data both ways. Uh, so, number one, I told you spleen was important. The spleen is, Im the spleen is important, more important using the coupled cells, and I'll tell you why. Because when we do that coupling of the cells at four degrees centigrade, for all intents and purposes, if you tripan blue stain those cells after that hour, they appear viable, they're full size. Uh, if we inject enough particles into a splenectomized mice, we can get tolerance without the spleen. 
suggesting there's probably, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in, believer in the old data about the liver being highly tolerogenic, and there's probably an APC population in the liver that can also substitute for the splenic marginal zone cells. What that is, we're trying to find it out now by tracking particles. Uh, you know, with the polystyrene beads, they're nice because they don't biodegrade and you can follow them for a long period of time. The PLG particles are biodegradable, so after about 18 hours, you can't find them anymore, so it's hard to do the tracking studies under those conditions. So, um, you know, and as far as Tregs, you know, uh, the, the, the data I showed you with the ILA transplant would suggest they have to be in the site. We have other data in autoimmune models, with, and I, I'm beginning to think that Tregs, their main job is to control leukocyte trafficking, not to acting locally in, the, in a site of a disease. So I don't, you know, I don't, I guess I, my, my answer is I, I'm not sure about Tregs, whether they have to be at the site or, uh, of the autoimmune disease or whether they can be in the site where cells are being activated, you know. And, and in type 1 diabetes, you would think it would be the pancreatic lymph nodes. MS, that's another whole question about who's the APCs and the brain and, and so forth. So it gets very complicated when you start thinking about those things. Yeah? Can the apoplectic cell be leukocyte or can be any type of cell? Interesting. They can be red blood cells. They have to be ECDI treated, though. So, you know, again, red blood cells go to the marginal zone of the spleen and get taken up. And, you know, we've never really looked. If you ECDI treat a red cell, you know, does it flip something on the membrane that makes that more susceptible to uptake by a marginal zone macrophage? I, I don't know. But red cells work. You have to use a lot of them, just like you do these particles. And the difference... In the, in the numbers, for, uh, particles versus splenocytes versus red cells, of course, the surface area. You know, all these experiments where we compared spleen to particles, we're injecting the same amount of antigen, but that antigen, there's a lot more particles required to carry that amount of antigen versus the number of splenocytes at that time. So why, why do you think you need so many of the cells to get those So many of the cells. I don't know, you know, the, the amount of peptide that we're administering on the micro on the nanoparticles or on the cells is somewhere in the range of 10 to 15 micron, micrograms. So it's not a lot. It's not a lot of peptide. It just, you know, the coupling efficiency, it just takes a lot of cells to get that much peptide delivered. Yeah? Can you describe the alginate uh, cells Yes, and by themselves they don't work because they're rejected by the autoimmune response that's lingering in those guys. So we're at the point now, Schwinn-Rung and I, where we're trying to combine autoantigen tolerance with alloantigen tolerance to see whether we can actually get that to work. But do you know that, I mean, are you sure it's the Although we have data, I showed you tolerance in NOD mice that we can actually protect them from disease in an antigen-specific fashion. We've actually done EAE in NOD mice because they're peptidable induced EAE, and because you're giving them adjuvant, they don't get diabetes. We can tolerate NOD mice quite readily. I'm yeah. still about the Yeah. I mean, we've had a long history of being able to tolerate all kinds of mice to pig even yeah. by transplantation. We tried for two years. Everything yeah. Yeah. to get that to work in Right. Yeah, so there might be, you know, a full aloe and NOD might be a problem. I, I don't know. That's I, We haven't really approached that, I don't think. Any other questions?